0: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is Wednesday, May 18th, and it is time for another episode of After Hours with Kevin and Lauren. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford, and we're going to bring in Lauren right now. Lauren, welcome back.
1: Hey, Kevin. Great to be back.
0: Well, great to have you here. Is this, our, questions. Is this our third episode now? Oh, goodness, (laughs) you're challenging (laughs) me
1: here. Um, I think it's technically our fourth. Oh, okay. I think we've done, I think we've done, this will be our third case study. And the first show, we just kind of talked about um, what to expect
0: with the show. Excellent. Good. Um, Last week, we did kind of an overview of the entire digestive process. North to south starts in the brain. Uh, ends at the other end. We kind of covered how everything works, and we had a lot of comments. People actually loved that show. I think that's really good um, to go back and do those kind of things. We, We actually used to have a show on trucks we called Back to the Basics, and we would take a system on a truck like the cooling system or the fuel system, and we would Go over the at the absolute basic level. This is the parts. This these are this is how they work. And and it's surprising even people that might know a lot about trucks and have worked on things don't always know some of the basic stuff like that. So, I thought, boy, if that works so well on trucks, maybe we should do that on the human body too. Maybe we should take these separate systems and you and I go through them like we did on digestion and just go back to the absolute basics. Talk about what parts are involved, how do they work. Uh, We did that with digestion, and then your idea, which I absolutely love, was now let's go back through the same process, starts in the brain, works its way south. What are the things that can go wrong at each one of those steps, and how do we fix them?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great... You know, and and I love that that the response was so positive to the last one because we don't typically think about digestion in that way, you know, so detailed. You know, what's really going on in there? There's so many steps in the process. So it's nice to just kind of refresh the mind and, you know, let people know that when they are eating and they are feeling the symptoms that, you know, relate to um, some kind of, you know, issue with digestion, then they, they can kind of reflect in terms of, you know, to what's going on in there. And I agree. I think today dysfunction um, is a good another place to, to kind of <laughs> talk because there's so many places that you can mess digestion up. And if you mess it up, like you said last week, you said if you mess it up in the very beginning, it's going to have a cascading effect and it's going to affect the, the whole rest of the system. So I think it's important to to hear how how can we mess up this whole process. So I'm excited about today's show.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I want to let everybody know that you and I don't, like, really, you know, get together and lay out everything we're going to talk about and, you know script it out and make notes and spend a lot of... We don't do a lot of prep for the show. You do your own prep, you know, because that's what you do every day. I kind of do the same thing. Um, But basically... Our preparation for this show is usually one or two text messages through the week, right? Hey, here's a topic. Let's talk about this. Here's a case study if you want to go look it up, and I, I can go in there and see who you've been working with. But we don't do a lot of preparation for this, and I, I like that. Both of us are good at thinking on the fly, so let's, let's do this this week. Um, let's take turns on each step. So I'll start with the brain. Uh, Because we didn't really script this or rehearse rehearse it. I'll start with the brain, and then you get the mouth, then I get the stomach, then you get the liver, gallbladder, then I'll take the pancreas, then you can have small intestine, and I'll have large intestine. How's that sound?
1: That's perfect.
0: Love Uh, it. I think that'll be fun. So the brain, this is actually where digestion starts. You know, a lot of times if you ask people, some people assume digestion starts in the stomach. That's probably the most common answer you would get from people. And then if you say it's north to south, where do you think it starts? They might say the mouth. Oh, okay, I got to chew my food. We need to go a little farther north. It actually starts in the brain. We know that the, the brain is impacted just by us seeing food. If we see food, not not like fish, if we see food, our brain changes. Our brain already starts to get prepared for digestion. Um, Food is very visual. Uh, You and I are both kind of foodies. Don't don't we put a lot of work into making our food pretty? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it makes a difference. You know, I, I see... Um, and, and I've watched you, you take beautiful pictures and you lay your food out really well. And, uh, Lisa's really good at that too. I, I'm kind of okay at it. Forget the picture taking part. Um, but I, I, like to do that. I like to arrange plates in a certain way and have certain colors of food. And, you know, you arrange it in a way and it looks really attractive. And, and I've heard people say we eat with our eyes first, and, you know, when you look at food in nature, many times certain foods are certain colors to attract us to them. So the visual part of food and digestion is, is more powerful and more, more important than most people think. So when we see food, when we think about food, there are physical changes. You know, the whole Remember Pavlov and, and, you know, he rang a bell and dogs started salivating because he would ring a bell and then feed them, ring a bell and then feed them. Pretty soon their brain came to recognize that when the bell rings, we're going to eat and they start salivating. That's how powerful the brain is when it comes to this, and the brain starts the whole process of digestion. So what can go wrong with this? In today's society, in our country, everything and it does go wrong almost every time we eat now. Um, we talked about, the last time we talked about digestion, we talked about other cultures, the French. Um, there are lots of cultures that have very different eating habits or traditionally they have. The whole world is, is unfortunately heading in the wrong direction on this. But for certain cultures, a meal was an event, it was scheduled. It was about the same time every day. You stopped everything else. You sat down. You relaxed. You were grateful. We talked about how many cultures say some form of grace uh, before they eat, and none of those things were by accident. Human beings realized, and again, it's always amazing to me that we knew all of the right answers we knew all of the right things to do long before we ever understood the science we can go way back in human history and see that their rituals were designed to prepare them for digestion their rituals around food were designed to help improve their digestion we didn't understand why but we instinctively knew that that was a better way. And today, we've gone to the exact opposite. So if our brain is the first step, how many people get up in the morning, maybe grab a cup of coffee at home or, or probably not, they're going to hit a drive through on the way to work. Now, they have to think about their driving. Traffic was really bad today. It's raining. They've got a big project at work. They hit the drive-through, and they are not thinking about food. And we even make it really easy to order. Now, think about this. You used to have to pick different menus and tell them, you know, different items. Now, we just pick the number three. Who wants to have to think about what I actually want to eat? Just give me the number three. We're not thinking about food, we're thinking about a hundred other things as we're pulling through that drive through and then we start shoving food in our mouth. Our brain wasn't even a part of this process. We just skipped the brain completely. And we know that once you compromise one step, every step after is compromised. So there's, I mean, we could just lump what goes wrong in the brain when it comes to digestion into that one big group we're just not paying attention. We're so distracted by so many other things that food is, is. it's really, we just, we're hungry. We just know we have to eat something and we eat it. There's no plan, there's no thought, there's no gratitude around that food. We just grab it and start shoveling it in our face. So I would say the biggest problem we have in the brain is just that, that we're not using our brain when it comes to food. We've gotten away from those rituals. We don't sit down with other people and make a connection, and, and we're not grateful for our food, and we don't put any real thought into it. So what do you think?
1: I think that's great. I think the only thing I would add is that when we're thinking about our food and we're getting ready you know, to make sure that we're Sitting down um, when we're when we're starting the whole process because what happens is if you're standing up, you are more in a sympathetic state, and the blood that should be going to your digestive system to get things ramped up and working will be diverted to your extremities, like you know, for like a fight or flight kind of mode. So,
0: good point. I think
1: it's important to make sure that we're also sitting down. But yes. I know you were starting with the brain. So No, that's that's a good point because that
0: that that's a thought process. That's a ritual that that's what we have to get back to that. We don't just eat on the fly with whatever's happening at the moment, standing, sitting, lying down, running, whatever it is that we have a plan. And we, we have some of these rituals again. And now you, you brought up a couple other things for me here. Um, that idea of of having the ritual and, and no, I know what I want to go back to. You use the word sympathetic when you're standing, you're in the sympathetic mode. I, I I keep meaning to go back and figure out where these two words came from because to me they sound backwards. The we when we oh, say yeah, I agree. don't they sound backwards? We when we think of sympathy or the sympathetic state. Doesn't that sound like a good thing? I, I think when I'm in the... Sy- now I almost can't say the word because I'm saying it too much. Um, that seems to me like that should have been the rest and digest mode. And the parasympathetic should have been the fight or flight. But I don't understand why they even used those two words. Actually, like what you I'd know. like to do is we should probably just get away from those two words. I think they're confusing. I think the idea of calling can, it, me, yeah. it, you know, fight or flight, fight, flight, or freeze, or rest and digest. I, I really think that that's a more descriptive, and it's easier to understand. So, to... to
1: I think you're right. It is easier.
0: Yeah, so when we I think say... So I,
1: I think I know why. Why? I, I think I know... I mean, the only thing that makes sense for me, actually, I don't really know if this is the case, but I I relate sympathetic... To sympathy, which is a reaction to something. You're feeling sympathetic. Okay. So that's a reactionary response. So when I think of a sympathetic state, you're reacting. So you are you know, getting ready to, you know, Got to, it. to run or fight, Got you know, okay. that's the only thing I could think of. I don't yeah, know if
0: that's That's, you know, it's a good way to help you remember it. Now I'll probably remember it that way too. But you know, in the beginning I used to have to stop and think about that a lot because I, it always seemed backwards to me, but I think the descriptive of fight, flight, or freeze, rest, and digest, I, I think that just tells us, and uh, we haven't said this yet, but let's not assume we always want to be in the rest and digest mode before we eat. That's the point here. Rest and digest. Fight or flight, the body makes all kinds of physical changes instantly, and one of them is that it shuts off our digestion. Mm-hmm. Okay, Absolutely. so next step, we, we've right. got to get this, this brain thing right. You need to get into that rest and digest mode, which means you shouldn't be doing any. Oh, I know another point I did want to go back to, um, just from personal experience. When I'm cooking a meal, if somebody else is involved, I put a lot more time and effort into the meal. You know, I I talked Mm -hmm. about, you know, making it look pretty and, you know, having a nice presentation and sitting down and relaxing and, you know, talking while you eat. So you're not just shoveling food in, you know, one bite after another, that that human connection that we make when we eat uh, is important. And we should seek that out more. And I can tell you, after just spending two months on the road, where a lot of times I was by myself. When I was driving, I was by myself. A lot throughout the day, I was by myself. I My eating habits are horrible, like I, and I caught myself doing this a lot. I don't take time to make the meal pretty and have any kind of presentation, or sometimes I don't even sit down. Sometimes I would grab a jar of meat, throw it in the microwave, and walk around eating it while I'm working. So... And, and I, I know a lot of people, when they eat alone, people, I know people who eat over the sink so they don't have to use too many dishes. You know, they just grab something, eat it over the sink, and move on. So we we want to kind of watch out for that. And truck drivers can spend a lot of time alone. And I, I know it's hard. I have to stop myself when I'm eating by myself and say, wait a minute. You know, maybe you don't have to create that beautiful presentation, but at least slow down put it on a plate, sit down, get rid of all the other distractions, be grateful, and, and then enjoy your meal. But I, I think it's a lot harder when you're by yourself.
1: I agree. I, I feel the same way when I have, when I'm feeding someone else, I definitely put more love into the food. Yeah. You know, I take my time. I Yeah, it's true. All
0: Guilty. right. Guilty. Next step.
1: <laughs> all right. Next step would be the mouth. Um, And I know it seems so simple, but there are actually two forms of, um, you know, kind of digestion going on here. There's a mechanical and a chemical. So um, we'll start with chewing. So the mechanical portion of it is just chewing our food properly. A lot of us are not taking the time to chew our food sufficiently. Um, I don't know if it's excitement or just trying to hurry up and get through the meal, but ideally we want to break down the food into, you know, mechanically with our teeth, you know, so that not only is it being broken down to smaller bits and easier for us to digest further down our system, but it also mixes with the chemical component, which is our saliva, um, and our saliva has some enzymes in it. It contains enzymes to help break down the foods, which actually starts in the mouth. A lot of people don't know that we're breaking down foods in the mouth chemically as well. So um, salivary amylase is the most known enzyme in our saliva. It helps to break down carbohydrates, and then um, lingual lipase helps break down fat. So we have carbs fats already starting the uh, the breakdown, the chemical breakdown in our mouth. So if we're chewing properly, it's mixing with the saliva and those enzymes, and already starting to really, you know, enable those enzymes to get you know wrapped up in all the different portions of the um, of what's called the bolus, essentially. Um, so the food mixes with this. And also our tongue, our tongue, when it touches these different um, macronutrients, whether it's proteins or um, fat, it sends messages down to the rest of our digestive system saying, hey, get ready. We have these particular things coming your way, so you're going to have to break them down So it starts, you know, kind of making the, the further down um, digestive organs and whatnot start um, preparing. So that is basically what's going on in the mouth. We have chemical and mechanical digestion occurring there.
0: Excellent. Now, one of the things I missed in the brain and, you know, happens in both the brain and the mouth. um, When your brain starts thinking about food and expecting it to come. And then even more so when you put the food in your mouth and you start chewing, we're also sending signals to the rest of the digestive process, so we're we're getting it ready. And if you chew so fast, you know you bite and swallow kind of thing, which sometimes I'm bad at. Um, you're not giving <laughs> your body time to receive those signals, so that's another problem. Like you said, if you're not mechanically breaking down the food enough, that's a problem. The chewing allows those enzymes in the mouth to get into the food more and start working sooner, and we start that signaling process, so our stomach starts producing more acid. Our liver and gallbladder start producing enzymes and bile, so it, it these steps really are important. Yeah. I want to add one more thing to this. Um, we get the question a lot about people call about a product. You know, I found this product, this food line or whatever. Many times I'll go look it up and we seem to be big now on shakes, like meal replacement shakes Mm -hmm. and, you know, nutritional shakes. And I heard a commercial the other day that kind of made me a little crazy. It, um, it said, "If you have diabetes, it's really important to choose your nutritional drink carefully. And my first thought was, "Oh hell no, why do you need a nutritional drink? That, that's a problem. We should not get a lot of our nutrients from liquids. Most of our nutrients should come from solid food that we have to chew. I'm not big on a lot of shakes and smoothies and, you know, meal replacement kind of stuff for a lot of reasons but one it's not good for your digestion if you're swallowing Mm -hmm. so let's ask this you you know these shakes that have fats and proteins and vitamins and minerals and all these supplements and they're supposed to be you know miracle drink this shake or drink you know a gallon of celery juice remember a couple years ago that big celery juice craze Yes, definitely yeah where'd that go Nobody seems to be doing that much anymore because they probably didn't get results or the results they got weren't good. That, that's, not, that's not natural. Where in nature is there a liquid that we get a whole bunch of nutrition from?
1: Yeah. Totally. doesn't exist.
0: I mean, technically, the only liquid we really drank as hunter-gatherers in nature was water. We didn't even consume mm-hmm. you know, the milk of animals back then. So we're not big on that. I want to throw one more thing in here because I'm noticing that this product is getting a lot more popular and it's not that it doesn't work. It's just, I'm not a big fan of this stuff. There's a product on the market called keto chow. Have you seen this one yet? I haven't. You should go look up keto chow. Um, It's getting a lot of popularity. They're spending a lot of money on marketing um i'm I'm seeing it talked about a lot in keto groups this is actually absolutely what i would consider dirty keto it is low carb it will work you will lose weight you will get your blood sugar under control but it's garbage it's not food it doesn't even come close to resembling food it's a bunch of nasty chemicals made in a factory somewhere and they're big on their shakes and you know, meal replacement bars, and this isn't real food. I, again, for weight loss and blood mm. sugar, it actually works. Almost anything low carb works for weight and blood sugar, but, you know, we're, we're more interested in overall health. So I, I'm just not a big fan. And again, with this keto chow and a bunch of shakes, you're not chewing, and that's not a good thing. So, all right, now we are on to the stomach. So now you chew your food, you swallow it, it goes down your esophagus and at the bottom of your esophagus, you've got a flap kind of a, a valve. Um, what do we call that one? The lower esophageal sphincter. Is that right? Yep. Okay. That's right. That's it. Good. Good. Sometimes I don't remember all those technical terms. So to think about this, oh, yeah. think about like a, uh, a, uh, trash can with one of those flip top lids that you stick your foot on and the lid flips open turn that trash can upside down it's not the best it's not exactly how that valve works but it's close enough and it it gives us a good idea so that that flap stays closed because we don't want the acid from our stomach getting up into our, our esophagus that's what causes heartburn causes GERD that acid is incredibly powerful or it should be if we have good nutrition our acid is incredibly powerful very low ph it could dissolve metal and it's there for a good reason it needs to be that strong we want a lot of it and it's there to break down our food one it's a chemical process to break down the food And we do have some other chemicals in there, pepsin and some other things that work on food as well. Um, But it's also there as the first line of defense in our immune system, because most viruses, bacteria, those kind of things, if we happen to swallow them and get them into our digestive system, um, good strong stomach acid will kill them. Weak stomach acid will allow those viruses and bacteria and other things, fungi, yeast to get right through and end up in our digestive tract and we may not want that so stomach acid does a lot of things and we want it to be strong and powerful in order to do that we need good nutrition and we need to be able to digest that nutrition which is what we're talking about now so what goes wrong here is that because we have poor nutrition in our diet in the standard american diet our stomach acid becomes compromised. We don't have the proper nutrients in our diet for our our body to build good, strong stomach acid in quantity. Now, what happens, the next step is completely backwards from the way the medical community has always treated this. They got it completely wrong. And I can remember reading this about 30-plus years ago. This is nothing new. I read this a long time ago. The first time I read it, I thought, that can't be right. That sounds completely backwards. Turns out it is right. When your stomach acid weakens, when the pH level of your stomach acid goes up, the higher the pH, the the weaker your stomach acid is, at some point when the pH gets too high, that flap will no longer stay closed. It's the pH of your stomach that signals it to close. And when the pH gets off because you don't have the right nutrients to build good, strong stomach acid, that flap will start to weaken a little bit and it starts to fall open. Now that acid can make its way up into your esophagus and you get heartburn. Well, our answer is the medical community, not ours. The medical community is, oh, okay, we'll take an antacid to neutralize that stomach acid. It makes the pain go away. You don't have heartburn anymore. So after a while, you've been taking antacids. Pretty soon, that's not enough because we haven't addressed the root cause of the problem. And now you need something called a PPI, a proton pump inhibitor. Now we take a drug that stops the pumps in your stomach from pumping the acid. Again, it takes away the symptoms, but it's a really, really bad idea. You won't digest your food properly. You'll be much more susceptible to viruses and bacteria and yeast and fungi and all kinds of nasty things. And that will get through the stomach now because you've shut off all this acid. Now it ends up in your the rest of your digestive system, and that's what causes dysbiosis. Uh, I had a call earlier today, and I said, we're really good at fixing every digestive issue you have. We know how they, that's why we're explaining it today. We know how each step works. We know how to fix each step. The one I said that can be difficult though, and and I think you would agree with me on this, if somebody gets a bad enough case of dysbiosis, that's not always easy to fix.
1: No, it's my nightmare. (laughs) Yeah,
0: exactly. Now, when somebody comes to you and they've got a history of heartburn and PPIs, you're confident you can fix that, right? Oh yeah, that I don't, I don't stress about. Yeah, they have poor fat digestion. You can fix that one, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely
0: SIBO. easy yep. one. SIBO, we know how to fix those things, and and we're we're pretty darn good at it. We know how to mm-hmm. fix dysbiosis. Doesn't always mean it works right. It, there's a lot about it we don't know yet. We we know if you're too mm-hmm. aggressive at going in there and trying to kill things. You also end up killing the good things. And then it's a crapshoot as far as what comes back. And unfortunately it always seems like for some reason the bad bacteria has an easier time coming back than the good bacteria does.
1: It does. It definitely does seem that way.
0: Yeah. So, so that's one, you know, if we can fix the brain and the mouth and the stomach then we can probably avoid getting a really bad case of dysbiosis because once we get one, they can be really difficult to to fix, and and we'll talk about that more as we get to those steps. So stomach is fairly simple. We want to maintain good, strong stomach acid. That that's really the, the probably the biggest thing that's going to go wrong here is that we have weak stomach acid, and it's very very common. That's why. PPIs are one of the best uh, selling classes of drugs in the world. Um, One of the other things that could go wrong, um, you could get a bacteria that causes um, stomach ulcers. We used to think that ulcers were caused by uh, stress and worry and spicy foods. And isn't it kind of funny now that we know our stomach acid is strong enough to dissolve metal? And somehow we thought a jalapeno was going to cause us an ulcer. Isn't that a little ironic? Yeah, it, that, that jalapeno might be hot, but stick a piece of metal in jalapeno juice and see if it dissolves it. It's not going to happen that that that's so mm-hmm. the these spicy foods that we were so worried about they don't cause ulcers what causes stomach ulcers actually is h pylori um it's a bacteria and i i love the story of how we figured this out uh, a, a researcher had this theory that it was a bacteria and he tried to he wrote papers on it he was actually ridiculed i mean he was He was almost canceled. We didn't have that word back then, but he was almost canceled over this. He was ridiculed. People said, that's insane. That's not what this is. And it took him years. And finally, he decided the best way to prove this was he infected himself with H. pylori. And sure enough, Mm -hmm. after drinking H. pylori and infecting himself with it, he got an ulcer. And then he used antibiotics to kill the H. pylori and the ulcer went away. I don't know the rest of the story, but there's actually a pretty good chance he <laughs> got it back. Um, using powerful antibacter- or, yeah, uh, antibiotics isn't always the best way to fix this because many times it will just come back. Uh, but this can be fixed. That is one of the other things that could go wrong. You could be eating a super clean diet, very healthy, good, strong stomach acid, and you could still get H. pylori. Um, it could happen and, and we know how to fix it. But there's not a lot of other things to go wrong here. This, that's probably the, the big one is poor stomach acid. The other one is H. pylori. Can you think of anything else? Am I missing something that might go wrong here?
1: Well, I, I really like that you stress that the majority of the time we're seeing people and, you know, helping them get through their, um, you know, their digestive issues because they have low stomach acid but we should mention that it's very rare, but every once in a while you could have too much. And there are specific reasons for this. And basically the issue is more that there's damage to the to the lining of the stomach if that happens. So for instance, if you're not um, if you have delay in emptying the stomach contents after they've reached a really you know, high acidity, and it's delayed moving that through to, you know, to the rest of the digestive system. And it just kind of sits there. Um, That could irritate, you know, the the mucosa lining. So there are different things, you know, that, you know, we, we need really good nutrient absorption in order to create hydrochloric acid. So making sure that we're able to, it's kind of everything comes full circle here, because, here we talk about being able to absorb the nutrients in order to absorb the nutrients. We need good stomach acid, but you get to the point where you don't have those nutrients. You're not going to be able to make that stomach acid on your own. So then that's where supplements come in handy, by the way, because then you're assisting the body to break down with hydrochloric acid in supplemental form so that you're able to absorb the nutrients so your body can start making it again on its own. And I think um, sometimes when people think that we're recommending a supplement, that it's something that they have to take forever. It's not, it's very rarely the case that you have to take it for the long for the long run. It's just to help support the body to start to make these things on their own again. Um, but yeah, I think you you did a good job covering that.
0: Good point. I like that. All right. What's the next step?
1: The next step is the, Stomach then hits a level of acidity where everything in there um, becomes what's called chyme, so it's more of like a liquidy form, and it then starts moving into the duodenum, which is actually the upper part of the small intestine. Um, and the duodenum, um, so the chyme enters; it sends messages um, to the stomach to stop making more hcl so like i said if if there's a delayed emptying and that the stomach doesn't get that message to stop producing hydrochloric acid and it keeps producing it then it can eventually cause um, damage to mucosal lining because the only thing really protecting the stomach from the acid is this um the mucus that that it's you know that's created there So we want to make sure that everything's running in a timely fashion. Um, So we send um, a message to the stomach to stop producing hydrochloric acid. And the chyme then is in the duodenum where it's introduced to bicarbonate, um, which helps to neutralize it. So um, the liver and gallbladder really come into play here. So... Um, the liver creates what, uh, bile, um, we talked about bile last week and we talked about how our liver actually produces about a liter of bile a day in the bile includes bile salt, which helps break down, um, fats and emulsify them, um, to, uh, you know, for absorption. So the liver will make the bile and then the gallbladder is where the bile is stored. So, things that can go wrong here, basically, um, someone could have their gallbladder removed because they basically have gallstones, um, which are caused by things like uh, sludgy bile, really thick bile that can then kind of crystallize and create stones. Um, so, we want to make sure that that, you know, we're eating a good amount of healthy fats in the diet regularly because that will help the body to keep this bile um, liquid form and um, really strong so that when it is needed, it can do its job. So things, by the way, that help um, produce the bile, uh, water, cholesterol, phospholipids, um, amino acids and stuff like that. So those are some cofactors that help produce the bile. So basically the food goes down. Your fats are, you know, the body's trigger that we have good healthy fats in there. Our gallbladder goes and secretes the bile and it becomes, um, you know, broken down into fatty acids, which are then able to be absorbed in the body. So that's basically what's going on with the liver gallbladder um, for breaking down fat. And then the pancreas is also in the same area. So the pancreas, um, the pancreatic juices, that's where that bicarbonate is, which helps alkaline, uh, make a, the chyme alkaline so it doesn't burn the rest of the digestive system as it goes down. The pancreatic enzymes are mixed in there. There's a whole list of those, but the main ones that we're going to really focus on are just the proteases, the amylases, and the lipases. Those all um, break down proteins, carbs, and fats. So we want to make sure that that's, that that's going right. And that, um, those enzymes are nice and potent. There's a good amount of them that can help break down the time. And then secretin and cck so our pancreas also has these um other things that kind of signal the body to to say okay well now we're we're in an alkaline state we can now safely allow this digested food because at this point you're pretty much um at a fully digested state so that as you travel, as the food travels down the rest of the small intestines, it's now its main function is to absorb things. Excellent. So we want to make sure, yeah. So, oh, but I didn't mention one thing. One of the things that helps prepare the pancreas to create and release these enzymes is um, a taste. So, so this goes back to our mouth. Um, when we when we have bitter flavors, it seems to trigger you know things like um, these enzymes to be created. So I, I feel like a lot of people stay away from bitter flavors because they're not as you know tasty as sweet, but they're actually really important. Um, so important that that to help digestion, a lot of um, a lot of nutritionists will recommend um, bitters. Um, to be taken right before or during a meal to help kind of stimulate the digestive juices and get them flowing. So I thought that was important to mention.
0: That is a good, a good point. Really good point. It brings up a couple thoughts for me. Um, excellent description of, of, what happens there what goes wrong there i think we could put this into two groups of of things that go wrong we either don't have the nutrients in our body to build all of these compounds you just talked about good healthy bile bile salts the enzymes um if we don't have the right nutrients to build those that compromises this One other thing that compromises this part of digestion and we see over and over and over, you deal with it a lot, is that people's gallbladder is is really compromised. If they have it, it doesn't work very well. You talked about sludgy bile. Um, This to me, again, I truly believe that the majority of the problems with the gallbladder and bile are the fact that we were told to eat low fat for so long. We know one thing about the human body. When you don't use a part of it, that part of that part of the body atrophies. It, it starts to lose its function. If you don't use your muscles, your muscles get weak. If you don't use your brain, your brain doesn't work as well as it should. If you don't use your heart, it, your heart starts to, to suffer. And the same thing with our gallbladder. And the way we use our gallbladder is by eating foods with lots of fat. That's what it's there for. But we went to this unnatural, low-fat diet for the last five decades, and I believe that's probably the number one cause of gallbladder issues. And I think it's why women have far more gallbladder issues and have their, ta- their gallbladders taken out far more often than men do because they bought into the whole low-fat thing so much more. What do you think?
1: I think that's a really good point. I think you're absolutely right there that, you know, when our body isn't, you know, it's not being used. If something in particular is not being used on a regular basis, that it's just, it slows it down and it thinks it doesn't need it anymore. So it's not going to be able to produce that good amount of that healthy bile. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That's a good
0: point. Yeah. Now, one other thing on the bitter thing, because it's kind of interesting, Um, digestive bitters, the bitter foods, like you say, a lot of people avoid them. Um, For a lot of people, it's not a pleasant taste. Um, Bitter is is just, it's not pleasant. One of the reasons for that is that in nature, almost, well, yeah, a good majority of Um, poisonous and noxious compounds are very bitter and it's kind of a Mm -hmm. warning sign for our body you put something bitter in your mouth you're probably going to spit it back out and and but it's interesting though that the bitter taste and we even use compounds called digestive bitters because it does oh i just had a thought does it ramp up, does this bitter taste ramp up our digestive system maybe as a defense against a toxin? Hmm.
1: I haven't thought of that, but that's interesting.
0: I didn't either until just now. Because I got thinking, most of the things, the way our body works is just brilliant. And I got thinking, why does our body Mm -hmm. want us to spit out this bitter compound when some of them are actually good for us? But maybe maybe what's happening there is the body's actually ramping up, creating more powerful enzymes, maybe to try to counteract a toxin that might be there. Huh. Something to think about. Mm. Yeah. Uh Yeah. So um, that was an excellent description. and, And what kinds of things can go wrong here you know, the, the issue here is when you get poor fat digestion, you get poor enzyme action. You know, a lot of times there aren't any real direct symptoms here. And and the symptoms that do occur, um, you know, maybe we don't really connect them to, to what's happening with our liver, gallbladder, pancreas, because most people don't know how they work. Um, but this is an area that can be a little more difficult for people um, you know, if you have poor fat digestion, the, the symptoms might be you get diarrhea more often, um, you get, tend to get light-colored and gray stools, you tend to see fat actually floating on the water, but it, it's not like you have to fix this. You know, a lot of people just put up with this, and maybe even think it's normal. Or so, a lot of times, I think people suffer from poor fat digestion and, and poor enzyme production for years or even decades, and never even address it. hmm So it's. Good. I
1: agree. I, th- I think that people who have IBS and whatnot, they they tend to just kind of figure out how to live with it. Unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's so common anymore. But you don't have to live like that. No, you don't. That's the good news. Now you did an excellent job there, and, and you you made a statement that at this point what the the part of digestion, you know, digestion to me really does signify everything that's happened up till this point. I would almost consider everything after this point, even though we call it digestion. And we call it, you know, the digestive system. I actually think it's, it's better to look at this as digestion has occurred up till this point. And if everything worked right, your brain, your mouth, your stomach, your liver, your gallbladder, your pancreas, you made the statement, the food is totally digested. I agree with that. So really the next couple yeah. of steps and processes are really absorption, aren't they? Shouldn't we call this digestion and absorption?
1: I mean, I agree. The only exception is the large intestine, like the fibers. But oh, you're, not, you're right. You're not digesting them. Yeah, good. But word. no, but you're not digesting them. Your your microbiome is digesting that. Yeah, so,
0: interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. So maybe we could just say, hey, yeah. uh, we're done with digestion at this point. We should be done done at this
0: point. Yeah, you're right. We're done with all the digestion we can do. There's, there's another step down in mm-hmm. the large intestine where our, our gut bacteria are going to work on some digestion. That's interesting. So if if everything has worked properly up till this point, you have fully digested food other than the fiber. We'll talk about that in the next step. Now it enters, it well, kind of moves farther down into the small intestine. Like you said, a lot of this process is actually taking place in the upper part of the small intestine, now it moves down and we need to start absorbing all of those nutrients. If something went wrong above and some of these food components aren't digested completely, they're not broken down properly into the subcomponents, then our body can't absorb them they, they are going to pass through at this point if they haven't been properly digested, and we lose all of that nutrition. So if you're eating the standard American diet, which is already lacking in nutrition, and then you have poor digestion, no wonder why the rest of your health sucks. It's obvious we don't have the nutrients we need. But even if you're eating a really clean diet, you've shifted, but you haven't fixed digestion, you still may end up with all kinds of health problems. So when I probably need to get better at this, when somebody tells me, no, I'm eating, you know, a really strict, really clean carnivore diet. And I still have, you know, I I've got to go back sometimes and say, okay, we better go back and look at digestion then. Cause that would be the next reason why some of your health concerns aren't getting better because Even though you're eating the nutrients, we're not getting the benefit of them. Then other problems can occur here in the small intestine. If you haven't digested your food properly, one, you're not going to absorb the nutrients. That causes all kinds of problems. Two, we can now start to do damage to the intestinal lining by not having our food digested properly as it moves its way through. The system isn't designed to handle a bunch of undigested food. So it starts to cause um, damage to our intestinal lining, which then can create leaky gut. There are several other things that can go wrong here in the small intestine, and we can start to develop leaky gut. Uh, Actually, there are several things that can go wrong in this step of the process. So this one may, we, we might need to dive a little deeper here. So, Lots of compounds in our food can damage this part of our digestive tract. There's there's something called villi here that it, it's kind of like hair almost. Think of these you know long filament kind of things. Our whole small intestine is lined with this villi. I think that's how you pronounce it, microvilli. And and what it does is it increases the area of our intestines so that we can absorb a lot of stuff. So if you think about, you know, a piece of paper, a flat surface and how much surface is there. And then if you took that and you put, you know, a million fibers on there that were a half inch long, now you have a lot more surface to be able to absorb. That That's kind of how our small intestine works. But a lot of the compounds in our food or food not digestive properly can damage that villi and the microvilli. And they're no longer able to absorb. So that's a problem. If you've been eating the standard American diet a long time, we may have absorption issues here that we have to fix. We know gluten um can be horribly destructive to our um digestive tract. Oh by the way, I don't know if I'm I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this yet or not. There is a test um for zonulin. We can take a fairly simple test. Um and if our zonulin levels are high that's a pretty good indication. We either have leaky gut or we're probably going to develop it. It's one of the easier ways of knowing this. Um, if I remember right, when we first got the zonulin test in the store, it's from the same company we use our food sensitivity test. I think you had it was only combined. You had to have them both. It was fairly expensive. And Lisa's been working on this. And again, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to talk about this yet, Um, but I'm halfway there. So I might as well finish. I think we're going to be releasing a very simple, very inexpensive zonulin test alone pretty soon. So I'll I'll double check on that. That was kind of exciting because I, I like this test, but I didn't like how much money people had to spend to get it before. So Lisa's been working on that. I think we might have a solution that would help us identify if we do have a problem here in this area of digestion and and we could uh, attack that and fix it pretty quickly the other problem that can happen here is what we call SIBO small intestinal bacterial overgrowth so in the next step Lauren's going to talk about the large intestine where there's technically more bacterial cells in your large intestine than you have in your entire body. We have more bacteria than we have human cells, but it's primarily in our large intestine there are problems that can happen in digestion that allow that bacteria to work its way up into the small intestine and then it lives there and it doesn't belong there and it causes problems because bacteria work through fermentation bacteria break down um, components in food through fermentation and fermentation causes gas and pressure that's why we have fermentation lids. That's why when you make beer or wine, you vent all of that pressure out because it if not, it creates all kinds of problems. A lot of pressure and gas in your intestinal tract is not comfortable, it hurts. So if you eat and immediately after eating, you find that you're burping and belching a lot and you have this pressure and pain kind of high up in your stomach or in your digestive tract that uh, pretty good indication you may have SIBO we can do some uh, testing for this they can test to see if you actually have a gas uh, in your breath methane and there are some other gases we can test for to indicate SIBO um, you know I, I i'm not against testing but it's usually not my first approach it's expensive, it's a hassle, if there are easier ways. And, and one of the things we know about SIBO, we actually have a product that's excellent for this, Atron And for me, a lot of times it's easier to tell somebody, hey, look, if you think you have SIBO, take some Atron If it gets better, you have SIBO and now we can fix it. And Atron is one of the big things we use to fix it. So I, I'm not big on sending people for the tests and, you know, let, let's try some of the easier, less expensive approaches first. Um, but that is the other big thing we see go wrong here in the small intestine. It's either poor absorption, um, damage to the intestinal tract, which we refer to as leaky gut, um, or SIBO. Anything else you can think of?
1: I think that pretty much covers it, actually. Yeah, that covers it.
0: All right, good. So, so what, what's next?
1: Okay, so next, um, if everything was digested properly from north to south, then we would have most of our nutrients absorbed already. Um, and with the exception of um, some of the foods that we ate that are fiber, um, and resistant starches, those do not get broken down much um, in the upper part of the digestive system. They remain intact and move all the way to the large intestine um, where they become food for the microbiota that that lives that live there because that's where, that's where we want most of the microbiome, uh, you know, those bacteria to, to live and stay. Now, sometimes, like we said with SIBO, they can they can kind of find their way back up into the small intestine, which leads to a dysbiosis there. But um, hopefully, they're not doing that. Hopefully, they're all in the large intestine. So, when the fiber makes it into the large intestine, it uh, the you know the the bacteria, the good bacteria, will then eat that and help digest it and create different nutrients there. So two of the most notable nutrients, um, butyrate and serotonin will be actually created um, right there in your large intestines, which a lot of people don't know. Now those, the microbiome, you know, it, it's going to eat all that. And then the rest of that fiber and resistant starches are going to, basically become and form um your your feces so you know when we talk about stool which we do a lot um we we want it to be like properly shaped we want it to be smooth snake-like so um the way that it looks and the way that it's formed is going to tell us a few different things so if it's coming out quickly like you said kevin if it's light colored um then it's typically meaning that that we're not breaking down our fast properly. Um, if it kind of has rougher edges or coming out in, you know, in smaller pieces rather than in one long smooth piece, then it typically means that um, you're suffering from a little bit of constipation. So we want to make sure that we are, um, uh, you know, one of the things that affects that is is your bile. If you're not, if your bile is not healthy and being secreted properly, um, then your motility is going to um, be compromised. And your motility is essentially how quickly your di- your foods move through your digestive system. And so we want it to move in a very uniform kind of, you know. I wouldn't say quick manner because if it was quick, then it would be, um, you know, a run to the bathroom situation where diarrhea happens, where there's typically irritation and inflammation and definitely a lack of um, digestion. Um, You basically see foods kind of, you know, exiting your body the way that they went in. So we don't want to be seeing that, but bile is important for motility. And so we want to make sure that you know we're creating good healthy bile in the northern regions so that when it does come all the way down to these southern regions, it's stimulating the large intestine to say, all right, um, it's you know, we've done what we've done and it's time to release the, the byproducts here. So um or the remainder of, of the of the the products. Um so basically Other things that can contribute to constipation, um, malnourishment, lack of fiber, like we discussed. Dehydration is a typical one. A lot of people think they're drinking plenty of fluids, but unfortunately, once we look at a food journal and we break it all down, I'm learning that there is a lot less um, liquids being, you know, especially water um, going in that needs to be. So, dehydration can definitely. Um, compromise um, the large intestines and and motility and whatnot. Um, And stress is also a factor. So we want to make sure to keep stress down. Once again, stress pretty much affects every step in the digestive process. So making sure that we are in that nice rest and digest state is going to be critical. Um, And then just to mention that A few, like neurotransmitters, a lot of those are are made in the large intestine, um, about 80% of them. So serotonin, for instance, I mentioned it earlier, um, that is produced by the cells of the colon, but it's stimulated by the microbiome, the, the different bacteria living in there. So it's important, especially when we talk about anxiety and people suffering with depression, that we look at, What's going on with digestion and especially their large intestines to see if they have a proper um, mix of good, healthy bacteria?
0: Excellent. Great description. Um, one, two, two things I want to add here. Um, the first one, virtually everything you and I just talked about and explained today and last week. And I know this week was somewhat repetitive, but I think that's good. I think you need to hear this over and over. And today we did focus a little more on the things that can go wrong. Um, Virtually everything we've said today, we could get 10 other health practitioners, you know, natural health practitioners in a room and they would agree with virtually everything we said. There's no real argument about this. We understand how this works. We know how to fix it. It's not that big of a deal anymore. Um, There are a lot of people that are good at this. There's one area, you just mentioned it, that still is not very settled in the natural health world at all. And that's the issue of fiber. Do we really need fiber to digest food or... Do we need fiber because our diet has been altered so much? There's lots of ways different people have looked at this. And we do know that on a carnivore diet, even carnivore-ish, even carnivore adding some fermented vegetables, you get nowhere near the amount of fiber they tell us we are supposed to get every day to be healthy. And we've heard that some of these hunter-gatherer societies that ate a lot of meat also ate a lot of fiber. And it turns out that may not be as true as what they thought. And we also know that a lot of people are on a carnivore diet with very, very low amounts of fiber, and their digestion works really good. I'm one of them. I don't get a ton of fiber in my diet, especially over the last couple months where I've been focusing more on carnivore, and yet my digestion is as good or better than it's ever been there there's this real argument about fiber and its role and do we need it and then to confuse it even more there are multiple different kinds of fiber some people will tell you that there's two soluble and insoluble that's correct but we can break the fibers down into much much smaller groups and different types and they do different things and That's the one thing I would say we're not in, you know, agreement on indigestion. And and I don't mean you and I, I mean, in, in the natural practitioner world, there's still a, you you know, you look at like somebody like uh, a Dr. Cole, uh, Will Cole, who's more of a ketotarian where he likes keto high fat, but he likes it mostly plant-based with some animal products. You look at, you know, Paul Saladino who wrote the carnivore code and there's not a whole lot of fiber in, in the diet that he's recommending yet we can get good results with both. I tend to be falling Mm -hmm. more and more into the camp of carnivore works really well and we don't seem to need a lot of fiber to have good digestion when you're eating a primarily carnivore diet.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. And I, and I also think that, and you know, I do believe in bioindividuality. individuality I think you, you really have to hone in on what's going on with you individually. I really yes. do. I think for some people, one thing will work and for others, it won't. So I think that's the most important thing. And you know, if I'm working with someone who's on carnivore and they haven't gone to the bathroom, but like once every two weeks, I'm going to be a little concerned And we're going to try a few different things. And that may be including more fiber in their diet, Um, probably in the form of fermented foods to start. And, you know, just that, but, you know, I I want to try different things because obviously something's not working. So, and I know that that's, you know, we've discussed that that can be a typical symptom when you first go carnivore um, and that it can fix itself, you know, for, you know, the further along you go. But if someone's been, you know, several months on carnivore and they're still having that that issue, then we're going to try different things. Yes. So, yeah, right. I agree.
0: Yeah, and I will tell you this, that eating the standard American diet causes all kinds of digestive issues. That's why it's so common. IBS, IBD, IBS-C, IBS. I, I the, can't even keep them all straight anymore. Crohn's, UC. Um, it, we just talked about all the things that can go wrong in digestion, and it, under the standard American diet, they almost all go wrong. Um, and I can tell you this, <laughs> fiber will not fix it. It, it, it. If you're eating the standard yeah. American diet, fiber will not fix your issues. of. If it were that easy, we wouldn't have all these problems. But it's one of the first things doctors recommend. Oh, you need more fiber. Yeah, in many cases, it actually makes things worse. Um, but once you get to that good, clean diet, it, it, it's like you said, we need to experiment with each person. Um, but I, I don't think that we need quite as much fiber as we've always thought. So just uh, keep that in mind. One other thing I thought about, um, and I don't know why this popped up, but when we were talking about the large intestine, um, do you remember Olestra?
1: Mm, I, the name sounds familiar, but what remind me?
0: Yeah, so Olestra, I believe it came out sometime. Um, I think, oh, no, I'm looking at it right now. The FDA approved it as a food additive in January of 96. So we go back a a ways Mm -hmm. here, and you could go back and look. Um, Lay's was one of the first companies to use it as a food additive in their potato chips. They came up with a line of Mm -hmm. um, chips and tortillas called Wow. And they used Olestra. Mm -hmm. And what Olestra is, you know how we have resistant starch? It's a starch or a carbohydrate that our body can't absorb. And we have sweeteners like sugar alcohols that we get the sweet taste, but we can't absorb them. They created a similar kind of fat. And that's what Olestra is. It's an oil You get the mouthfeel of fat. You get that satisfaction of eating something fatty, which we know our body really likes. Um, But remember the commercial, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. And this fat fools you into thinking you're getting fat, but your body can't absorb it. So it's basically a zero-calorie fat, like a zero-calorie sweetener but this stuff was it actually made um, it made Time magazine as one of the 50 worst inventions ever um, this stuff is so bad for you what do we know about vitamins um, a D e and k they're
1: fat soluble and you can only get them when you eat good fat
0: yep you can so only break
1: them down and absorb them when you eat good fat
0: excellent that's exactly correct and olestra basically blocked the absorption of all of these fat soluble vitamins horrible idea that was one problem wow there was another problem though this fat goes through your entire digestive system and never gets absorbed or digested that's the whole point of it um It created a problem. Just the term makes me shiver. You know, we say disaster pants. Um, This is worse. The the term for Alestra was actually called anal leakage.
1: Oh, no. (laughs)
0: anything but that <laughs> uh, yeah anal leakage i just don't like the sound of that it, it was exactly what it sounds like yeah um oh. yeah imagine that so b- believe it or not i don't know if there are any food products left with this in it but it is still an approved food additive by the fda they didn't take it off the market doesn't surprise me it's yeah, I don't know if anybody uses it anymore. It was such a horrible, um, and, it, and it did really did get a bad reputation. Imagine sitting in an important meeting and experiencing something called anal <laughs> leakage. I don't like that idea. Oh, oh goodness. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so I just thought I'd throw that in. I don't know why that popped up. Um, all right, I think that was... Uh, that was excellent. I think that should really help people a lot understand now two weeks of what's going on in digestion, what can go wrong in digestion, how it works, how we can fix it. Um, I think you have a great example today, don't you?
1: Yes, we do. Our case study today is a 48-year-old 48, 48 woman whose main concern is diverticulitis. So when we talk about the, la- the large intestine, um, you know, that's one of the, the things that, that can happen that when things go wrong, um, you can suffer from diverticulitis. So if you're ready, we can jump right into this case study and, um, talk about diverticulitis a little bit. Yeah, let's. All right. So main concern is diverticulitis Then the others are weight and high blood pressure, but I thought it'd be good to um, really focus on diverticulitis um, since we're talking about digestion today. And also, I wanted to note that it's it's something that, you know, is typically an acute, you know, it's an acute thing. So you suffer from it, um, that it can be really bad and very, very dangerous, by the way. Um, So that's why I wanted, you know, we focused on basically that as opposed to everything else because that is a, a pretty important thing. Um so some interview findings revealed that this woman was keto um in two thousand eighteen and then stopped about six months ago. Um during the time by the way when she was keto everything was great. She was super healthy, but I think that with COVID and all of that, you know, I feel like a lot of people's diets kind of slipped, and they weren't, you know, they didn't think it was going to last for as long as it did. So they thought, hey, I'll just let myself go for a bit. But that had some uh, negative ramifications. So, for instance, she stopped the keto diet about six months ago and developed diverticulitis um, shortly after After that. So, um when I spoke to her, she was um, already starting the keto diet again because she realized that it definitely was was related to her new, you know, diet um, decisions or choices. But a few other things: she rated her stress at a seven. She was on antibiotics in March for the diverticulitis, um, and she ate artificial sweeteners on a regular basis. Um, those are things that really stuck out because when you think of diverticulitis, you think of the different things that can affect your digestive system and those things, um, obviously antibiotics as well as artificial sweeteners, uh, negatively impact the digestive system. Um, her NutriQ findings show that her upper GI could use a little support. Her liver and gallbladder need, need quite a bit of support as well as her small intestine. Um, and then minerals were, you know, were needed, uh, fatty acids as well, and her sugar handling um, was pretty high, meaning that she, she needed to adjust her diet because her sugar handling was all over the place. Um, a few other reveals were the medications she's on, which included, by the way, Uh, for about a year, she was taking aspirin every day. And the reason for this was her doctor recommended it. Um, so we discussed this a few times. I think we all know that that myth has been debunked. Um, I think now we acknowledge that aspirin can actually do more harm than good. Um, especially, um, you
0: know, when it comes to digestive system and your small intestine. Yeah, and so one other um, thing let's talk about one oh, other thing, I'll jump in there. Um, you know, it might be one thing if you get a headache once in a while to take some aspirin. It it may be one of the less mm-hmm. destructive over the counter pain relievers, um, but it, it's totally different to take something every day. Uh, the the idea mm-hmm. that. People should take aspirin every day, even low-dose baby aspirin, was just a bad idea, and we know that now. Good cardiologists no longer recommend this. It's a shame there are still plenty of cardiologists that are recommending it, um, but this can be the result. You can end up with with several digestive issues from daily aspirin. Just not a good idea. One other thing I want to cover real quick because it confused me a lot in the beginning diverticulosis mm-hmm. and diverticulitis and i i yes so we're real- going to
1: talk about the dip, like okay, the differences good. there
0: good good go ahead then
1: uh, go ahead if you want to start yeah go i was just going
0: to try to simplify it and you might go a little deeper into it um there are lots of people who have diverticulosis and don't know it diverticulosis means you have the pouches that have formed in the large intestine, but you don't know it because you don't have any symptoms. You don't feel bad. There's no real digestive upset. Yeah. Um, when you get symptoms, pain or the other things, then it becomes diverticulitis. It, it, diverticulosis is kind of the condition. You have the pouches. Diverticulitis is a flare up and you have symptoms.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. And, and when you get diverticulitis, the reason you have that, those symptoms is it's usually because a particle of food has gotten stuck in this pouch in the large intestine. And if it's stuck there, it's, it's going to do bad things like get infected. So it yes. causes like infections and stuff like that. So yes, then it usually happens on, you know, some of the, the symptoms are that there's severe pain on the left side of the you know the kind of the torso um because it usually happens you know right there on the left side and the lower third part of that, the, the large intestine
0: that's I know, a, that's I a really good point yeah i want to jump in there because that's a really mm-hmm. good point because there are very few things almost nothing that tends to cause pain on the left side of the torso Digestive pain exactly. almost always is on the right side, liver, gallbladder, pancreas. Uh, there's a lot going on on the right side. So a pain on the left side is usually probably one of the first things you should be looking for is diverticulitis.
1: I agree. Absolutely. So the large intestine, I was going to say, because not everyone is, you know, knows that the large intestine connects to the small intestine and it's. the connection happens on the right bottom part, like close to your hip bone. Um, So your right lower torso, and then it goes up and then across to the left. It's kind of like towards like underneath the rib cage. And then it goes down um, the the left side. So yes, the pain would usually be on that left side. So not, you know, it's not the same kind of pain that you'd be feeling with your appendix was, you know, you know, in danger because that would be on the right-hand side. Um, but there, like you said, there are several pains you can experience on the right-hand side. Um, if your ileocecal valve gets, you know, kind of stuck open, which happens sometimes, which causes dysbiosis um, and movement of bacteria from the large intestine to the small intestine, then that can cause a little bit of pain as well. So there are different things um, that can cause pain in that area, but this is very different. It's on the left hand side only. Um, other symptoms include nausea. Um, it can turn into a fever and chills, um, mainly because it's, it's a bacterial infection. Um, so your body's doing what it can to kill off the bacteria in there, and you know, and, and fix the problem. Um, constipation and a loss of appetite. Are also symptoms that um, that typically arise with this issue. Um, we could talk about some risk factors, uh, but basically, intestinal inflammation. So anything that can cause the intestines to be inflamed, which we know is a lot of things, including um, NSAIDs, um, you know, aspirin, and stuff like that. Um, those things can cause inflammation. Um But stress, stress raises cortisol levels, which can impact the makeup of the, of the microbiome, which can also cause inflammation because you can have a mix of really bad bacteria as opposed to the really good bacteria in there. Um, and cortisol can also trigger leaky gut. Um, another, you know, inflammation, you know causes inflammation. so there are a bunch of different things. Um, also, inflammation can be caused by, omega-6 fats, you know, bad fats, fats that we, you know, uh, don't get me wrong. I should should, uh, explain that. Omega-6s are not all bad fats. Um, Ideally, we'd have a a ratio of one-to-one, omega-3s and omega-6s. Unfortunately, with the modern diet, we are exposed to entirely too many many omega-6s, which are more inflammatory, they're pro-inflammatory. Omega-3s are the ones that, reduce inflammation. So, you know, that's another thing that can cause, you know, inflammation, um, grains, like we discussed, um, if you're lactose intolerant or have a sensitivity to, to dairy that as well. So there's, um, you know, a handful of things that can cause inflammation, which can cause these kind of facts to appear. Um, and as we get older, it's, you know, I'm sure it has to do with diet and the exposure to all these inflammatory things. Um, these facts are, you know, seem to, to be more present as we get older as well.
0: Um, you know, I, I think uh, I was looking for this real quick because I wanted to see a statistic. I remember reading one that, um, that shocked me, but, but maybe not here it is. It says, uh, by the age of 60, uh, 50% of Americans have or have had diverticulosis, um, and mm-hmm. it says almost everyone over the age of 80 has diverticulosis, but not all of those people have diverticulitis. Um uh, my guess would be that the reason it happens isn't just because we managed to make it to 80 years. I believe it's because it was 80 years of the standard American diet. I, I have a feeling hunter gatherers probably never experienced this.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we'll get into, you know, healing it and how conventionally what they tell you to do. And, and a lot of it's been debunked. So it's, it's it's interesting. There's, you know, they tell you to stay away from certain things, which could actually be beneficial.
0: Exactly. So we'll talk about that as well. Good.
1: Um, so bacterial dysbiosis, um, SIBO, SIBO, however you want to pronounce that, um, produces, you know, methane gas typically. Um, and it affects your gut motility. So that's that, that You know, the gut motility is what we talked about earlier. It's important that the motility keeps, you know, it's functioning properly. The foods are moving through the digestive system at a regular pace. That's not, you know, letting it sit there for too long. Um, So when you're not eating, um, basically this migrating motor complex, it's called. Um, So between meals is when this this is really happening as well. Um, It basically is like a street sweeper. It comes in and it's these little contractions of the digestive system that cause that push food further down. So they found that people who, who continuously snack throughout the day um, are more prone to, um, you know, this diverticulosis or diverticulitis um, because things are just kind of sitting there. Um, We're not giving a chance for our, you know, migrating motor complex to to really kick in and get those foods moving out so that it can start fresh when you sit down for your next meal. Um, you know, constipation is also something that contributes to it. So, you know, same thing that motility slows down. We got to get, make sure it keeps going. So SIBO can, can, um, can affect that. Also, um, a lack of serotonin, um, serotonin also helps with this motility, um, and a lack of exercise. So, you know, making sure that you're just moving, you know, people don't realize we always underestimate the power of movement. So that's one of the other things that they found the people that are more stagnant tend to, um, to, to come up, you know, to eventually have these these issues. So I'm curious, Kevin, um, conventionally, treating diverticulitis um what have you heard i'm I'm curious to hear what Uh, if you had any feedback on
0: that yeah yeah one of the things i've seen used a lot one of their favorite go-to's antibiotics um addressing Mm -hmm. the infection part of it which seems logical and to make sense the infection is what causes the inflammation the inflammation causes the pain Um, it seems logical to do that but we also know that the biggest part of our our gut and our immune system and our um, neurotransmitters comes from bacteria. And what do antibiotics do? They kill bacteria. So, uh, you know, I swear we overuse antibiotics because they are actually one of the class of drugs that do things. They actually do solve the problem. They kill the bacteria, the symptom goes away. So they get used a lot. They get overused a lot, which is we could probably do a whole show on that and all the dangers that's causing us. But um, that seems to be what I see most. And then they tell people to avoid red meat because they claim red meat actually causes this problem. And red meat is one of our most nutritious foods. So now they're one to approach, eat less red meat and take an antibiotic. Both of those things are really bad for us. So even if they do improve this condition it's not the right way to approach it.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I guess they also do surgery. I don't know exactly what that consists of. Um, maybe somehow cleaning out these little sacks to do away with the bacteria, but I can imagine how invasive the surgery is. I don't think anyone wants someone going in there. Yeah, to that sounds scary. Do the surgery.
0: Yeah, that sounds scary. <laughs> So what what can we do?
1: I agree. So from a functional, you know, perspective, there are different things that you can do um to avoid it. You know, you know, like we we discuss things that contribute to it. We want to make sure we have a good mix of, you know, in the microbiome that good healthy bacteria is in there. Um, we want to ensure that we're not eating pro-inflammatory foods like the industrial seed oils and and stuff like that. Um, Also, you know, you could support motility. There are ways to do that. I mentioned, you know, probably the most important one is that microbiome balance because if 80% of your serotonin is made there in your large intestine, then, and that also helps motility, then you don't want to wipe out all of those good bacteria So those are other things. Now, for the actual treatment, if you can catch it soon enough, then there are different things that you can do. You know, if you start having symptoms right away, bone broth is very good in terms of healing. You know, we know that bone broth is good to help heal the intestinal tract. So that is a great thing, you know, to be drinking on throughout the day. Supplements like glutamine, marshmallow root, slippery elm; those different things um, can help with the healing process as well. Um, then different things like removing. Well, well, actually, I should mention the the what's been debunked. They do tell you conventionally to stay away from seeds and nuts, which is interesting because I, I think their thought process is that seeds and nuts. You know, they don't get broken down very well, so they kind of stay in their original form and make it all the way down to the large intestine. And since they're kind of denser, they could potentially get stuck in these little sacs and create an infection. But, this, you know, there are studies that show that there's a high level of alpha linoleic acid in these seeds and nuts that become omega-3s which actually help with inflammation, like battle inflammation. So that's an interesting thing that they're finding now. They're telling people not to avoid season nuts. Um, also, they do tell you to avoid fiber because they think that anything that could, that travels all the way down to the large intestine um, and could get stuck there could eventually, or uh, could, you know, be a problem. So, um, they say, you know, a few things. Now, these are things that we don't recommend for, for you know, the long haul. Um, drinking, you know, juicing to get, you know, your nutrients for a short amount of time. I'm talking days, like maybe two to three days. Um, and slowly starting to add fresh vegetables and fermented foods. The fermented foods, that's also to help replace the good healthy bacteria in there. Make sure that you're getting... The good bacteria but um, clove and peppermint tea as well helps restore the gut microbiome so any kind of you know high polyphenol food um, will help do that but there's really no one treatment that you can do unfortunately unless you do something as serious as a surgery or antibiotics that literally will kill everything if you do the antibiotics from my experience knowing people close to me who have had diverticulitis and they have taken the antibiotics it does help, you know, fix the situation temporarily, but they typically get, you know, that the problem comes back. They have a relapse, they have the infection again. And so what I've noticed in the long run the thing that helps the most is to avoid it at all costs.
0: Yeah, one of the other things that you can recommend short-term again, because all we're trying to get, all we really want to happen here is to get somebody through the flare-up, the diverticulitis, and then good, healthy, clean diet, a little bit of movement. It shouldn't come back. We don't have to take real drastic measures for this, but um, a low FODMAP diet is usually recommended for short-term because it, it does eliminate mm-hmm. a lot of the foods that cause flare-ups. Here's something interesting, and I'm wondering if you see this with your uh, discovery calls and one-on-ones. I, I did when I was doing them, I, but I see it more on the air. You know, I get calls, people to say, I'm, I'm really strict carnivore, I'm really strict keto, it might be dirty, it might be clean. There are still some conditions we see that don't go away. Just because you're eating that, and especially if it's dirty keto, I had a call today where I thought dirty keto was actually the reason that he really needed to clean up the diet and make it more nutrient-dense, but... You know, I, I I still get calls of certain things. People still have certain issues, and we have to go deal with them. I don't seem to see much diverticulitis once somebody has gone to keto or carnivore or even just paleo. It's not one of those things that seems to hang around. It, it's not one of those things that we really need to go back and address a lot. Almost everybody that calls me and has had a flare-up, a diverticulitis episode, is still eating the standard American diet. So I think it's one of those things that a lot of times, if you just move to some sort of a paleo-based diet, the odds of getting this seems to go way down.
1: Mm -hmm. I agree. I don't come across many people with it that have a good diet. Actually,
0: nobody so far. I I was going to say, I I, I almost hesitate to say nobody because I've been doing this for so long, but I honestly can't think of one. Virtually every time somebody asks me about this, they're still eating the standard American diet. My answer then is, let's do 30 days of a good, clean, paleo-based diet and see what happens. And usually we fix lots of things and they forget about the diverticulitis and it usually never comes back.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, for this particular person, this particular case study, because she needed some help with digestion and whatnot. So, the, the protocol was some hydrozyme to help support upper GI, beta TCP for fat and, you know, or for fat digestion and to help with liver gallbladder. The GI resolve was another one that I recommended. Um, by Omega 1000 for more Omega 3's and for motility to help improve motility um, I recommended some more magnesium so sometimes you know some people just need that extra boost in magnesium to get that that motility going Um, hopefully it won't be something they need forever but Sometimes, yeah, I mean, I, I find that it helps a lot just to get things moving, um, kind of jumpstart things. So, um, I, I, other uh, than that, balanced bacteria. Yeah, balanced bacteria and reduced stress, which seems to be a very big issue at this particular case. And then for the healing of everything, just bone broth, well-cooked vegetables to help the digestive process before she even ate them. And to get a good amount of fermented foods in there to help get uh, you know good amount of those healthy bacteria.
0: I love that. You mentioned a product, and I haven't thought about it in a while. But um, I, I want to go back to it because it's one of those products that always seems to work really good for me. Um, and I haven't talked about it a lot. GI Resolve. Uh, for some reason, mm-hmm. that product really seems to work well for me. Um, did you do the neurolingual testing of supplements?
1: Uh, only when I was studying. I haven't done that in a long time.
0: Yeah, me either. Um, I just want to go over that real quick because that, that was a, kind of an interesting experience for me. GI Resolve and another product. We have IPS. Um Neurolingual testing. This is when you're working with somebody in person, and I, I guess you could do it remotely as well. Um, but it almost always goes along with the physical exam we were taught, and we can. the The idea here, and the first time I heard it, I thought, "Oh, come on." Um, I, I'm I'm always a little skeptical of these kind of things, and I, I. But so many of them have been proven to be right, but they just sound so weird. So. The idea of neurolingual testing when we when we do the physical exam. What's the name of it? Why can't I think of um, what we call that?
1: The functional. Uh,
0: yeah. Oh, wait. The,
1: the actual functional portion of the yeah of the certification we got.
0: Yeah. What do we call? Oh goodness, we, I don't remember. I know we put hands on. We test I all the pressure like, points and pain.
1: Yeah, I thought it was just like a functional. It was functional
0: something. <laughs> I know. I, I, there's a name, and I'm, I'm just not I coming up with it. it. But it's pretty interesting. It's like has been you, too
1: long.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you put, you know, pressure right on the liver, and you ask somebody to rate their pain from 1 to 10, basically. Um, and there are multiple points around the bodies, and all of these points um, correlate to an organ or a system somewhere in the body. And even that, the first time I heard it, I thought, Oh come on now! But it's actually pretty damn accurate, and it's pretty powerful, and there's a lot of science behind it. So you do the initial exam, and you note everybody's pain points. So let's say they're, um, you know, the some of the points around the small intestine are really, really sensitive for them. They're at a, and the first time I did it, most of because I was eating a pretty clean diet already um, when I started through the training, so I had really low scores. But I did have some pretty high scores on, on some of the intestinal issues. And I hadn't fixed my digestion yet. I mean, I had some eights and nines. I was shocked. Um, then what you do after you, you score all these points, then you pick one and say, okay, let's see what supplement might work best for your liver or gallbladder. And you take that supplement. In this case, let's say we're going to try GI Resolve. If it comes in a capsule, you actually take the capsule, break it open and put a little bit of powder right on their tongue. If it's a tablet, you actually have them hold the tablet on their tongue. And then you go back and you put the pressure on that point again, and you see if there's any reaction. And I had my pain come down from eight and nine to one or two. And almost every time, and it almost didn't seem to matter where we were working on digestion, GI Resolve and IPS brought my pain down every single time. It was really incredible. And, and you know, I understand the placebo effect and all of those other things, but I had been through multiple other supplements testing and nothing did anything. But for some reason with me, mm. GI Resolve and IPS were, were just they and really what that tells you is whatever nutrients are in those that that's what i was missing
1: exactly and it sounds like if it was gi resolve you could have just had lingering inflammation if your diet was already good your inflammation may not have completely gone down because the gi resolve you know has aloe vera okra dgl you know l-glutamine like things that really are good at healing the GI lining.
0: Exactly. Yep. Yep. That's correct. So, all right. Any, uh, any final words on the case study?
1: No, I think, I think that pretty much covers it all. Um, I think that probably the key product here other than, you know, working on digestion was really to start healing that that mucosal lining. So that GI resolve is definitely something that I I tend to forget about as well. Um, but it really was something that came to mind when I when I heard of you know the diverticulitis situation. I said, you know, it, it's inflammation. It's, it needs healing. It needs you know you need to really heal those barriers and make sure that those diverticulosis are not you know appearing constantly and you know because if you have those appearing then you have a chance that something is going to get lodged in there
0: yeah i would even say that if if you have like um intestinal pain irritation we're not really sure what it is um clearly working with you on a discovery call and a one-on-one we fix digestion issues all the time i mean this is like common It's like doing an oil change on a truck. You you just, you know how to do it. You do it over and over. It works just about every time, every now and then you get a more complicated case, but you know, digestion is one of the things we're, we're pretty darn good at fixing. But I even tell people, look, if, if you're not ready for the discovery call and you've got some of this irritation, a 24 hour, 24 to 36 hour bone broth fast with some GI resolve, really can Mm. do wonders. I agree. All right. I think that
1: pretty much covers it.
0: I think so. I think we're, uh, we're going to wrap this up for the day. Then (laughs) are we doing um, live Q and a on healthy tribe today?
1: We are. And I was thinking for that. I'll just kind of, you know, as I'm waiting for people to ask questions, I can talk about different digestive recommendations because, you know, you go through how it works when it's working properly, how it works with, you know, when it's not working, it's dysfunctional. Um, So I just thought a few recommendations in terms of, you know, helping support digestion would be be good to hear.
0: Excellent. Now let me remind people, We're going to do Q&A live on HealthyTribe.com. So that's all you have to do is go to HealthyTribe.com. You'll see it. It'll pop up in the feed when you start. Now, Lauren, you're live on video. We're watching you. I'm in the chat room because we have a chat room along with the video. So I'm not on video, I'm just in the chat room and I kind of answer questions because you're usually talking and explaining things and you're answering questions and I throw my opinion in. Um, For a lot of people who are uncomfortable being on the radio, this is a great opportunity. I want people to understand you're not on video, you're not on audio. All you have to do is type in your question. So if you've had questions, and just because we're doing digestion today, um, I'll, I'll ask you because this is kind of your show. We don't really care what questions they ask during these sessions, right? They can ask anything.
1: Yeah, I agree. They can ask whatever, whatever they want. It's kind of a open, open
0: field here. Ask yeah, away and,
1: anything that you want to know.
0: Yeah, and we do this for a couple reasons. One, you know, we we want to get Lauren more involved. She has a great perspective on a lot of things. She's the ones working with people day in and day out. Um, so we want to give you more of an opportunity to work with her, ask Lauren questions, and it does help for those people who they don't want to be on the radio or they've tried to call and they can't get through or, or whatever it might be. Think of this Q and A as a free for all. You get to ask any question you want, any health related question. You don't have to be on the radio. You type in the question um we'll give you our answers and our opinion so with that i guess we'll wrap this up when are we going to start
1: let's say let's do 2 15, 20 minutes
0: i love that perfect all right 2 15 right. eastern time that's eleven fifteen on the wacky left coast where i live um, we will see you then at healthy tribe.com show up, bring us lots of questions. In fact, try to stump us. Uh, we'd love a challenge today. So we will see you then Two fifteen. healthy tribe.com be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey. I'm Kevin Rutherford.